0: Daddy. Thank you for listening. Thank you Thank for listening you to the Outstanding Ohioan show. Thank you for the Outstanding Ohio show. Hosted by my, daddy.
1: Hosted Hosted by by my, my daddy. daddy.
0: Thank you, Brian and Sawyer, for that great introduction. Indeed, this is the Outstanding Ohioan show. I believe Ohio and the people of Ohio have an incredible, wide-ranging and proud impact that needs to be shared with the world. And it's always been that way throughout the history of the United States. The job of the Outstanding Ohioans podcast is to share these remarkable success stories with an intelligent and curious audience. The Outstanding Ohioans podcast connects to highly accomplished people in all walks of life and shares their secrets to success. And today we've got another great success story to share with you. Thank you for listening. And please leave your comments on iTunes, Stitcher, or the blog post. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Hello, thank you for joining us on the Outstanding Ohioan Show. My name is Ron Silico, and this is episode 43. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing four guests from the Thomas Edison Birthplace Museum, run by the Thomas Edison Birthplace Association, Incorporated, board members Robert Wheeler, John Blakeman, Don Gefell, and director Lois Wolf. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for nice having you. us. Good thank you. to be here.
0: So I've heard some great stories already, and I don't even know where to start, but I think I'll figure it out. Um, we're here at the Edison Birthplace Museum in Milan, Ohio, and the town itself has a great history that we'll get into and as I heard it earlier from Mr. Blakeman, a lot of things came together in Milan in, in the mid-1800 time frame to bring the Edison family to Milan. Would someone like to speak? To that point,
2: yes, I will. John Blakeman, Uh, very interesting story. Samuel Edison, Thomas's father, was a Canadian, although he was married to an American. Uh, In the early 1830s in Ontario, uh, he and some of his compatriots rebelled against the crown. He just felt that that part of Canada, if not all of Canada, should be segregated, separated from the crown. Well, as we know, that didn't work. He became persona non grata, with the uh, crown chasing him. He uh, he and his wife left Canada, just across the lake in Ontario, came across to the United States, and then, uh, uh, as an immigrant uh, refugee, wanted to know where to live. We were still out in the developing American West, which is the Midwest now, Uh, but this is in the early 1830s. He comes into Cleveland, Ohio, which is across the lake, and uh, apparently under, uh, asks around, where should I go? And he uh, was informed, came, came to understand that he should go 40, 50, 60 miles to the west. There was a little town out there formerly called Petquoting, but now called Mylan, uh seven miles from Lake Erie on the Huron River. And this little town was exploding, to be honest, it was in the eighteen thirties and forties to become the Silicon Valley of the Midwest. Yes, there was Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, and so forth, but no one, no place was exploding economically as this little town of Miland was, and that's because Miland was on the at the beginning of the Midwest. We were on a great prairie here. The settlers coming out from New England in this part of Ohio. Discovered that the soils here literally produced 10 times more bushels per acre than the rocky soils of the east. So there was a giant infusion of new settlers, lots of agricultural produce, and because in the 1820s the Erie Canal had just been opened and the Huron River has a glacially deep bottom, schooners, with the, with, with the exception of one, uh, one uh, the lock, could come right up the river here, and to make a long story short, quickly, um, all of this agricultural produce could go from Milan and B in New York City in just two or three weeks. This became a gigantic economic trading center. Stuff from the east came here. uh, Materials, agricultural materials went back here. Lots of money, lots of trading, Uh, and so this was the place. So Samuel Edison comes up the Huron River investigating... And perchance he sees there's gigantic oak trees. Now, because of the great, uh, the fine soils here, there were lots of oak trees. bur oaks, white oaks, red oaks, all used for building. But shingle oaks grew here. Quercus imbricaria. they were worthless except for one thing. They split wonderfully into wooden shingles for roofs. Now, that's the only kind of roos anyone had. Thomas, uh, Samuel Edison was a shingle maker. Did he come to the right place at the right time with the right resources? So he said, yes, this is where I need to come. And so he did, and he supplied shingles um, from the resources here. And uh, that's how Thomas Alva Edison uh, was born here. His family came here because of the resources. As you will hear all of us say, there were all of these Dynamic arrow is pointing to the same place at the same time that caused all of these things to happen. We had the right geology, we had the right soils, we had the right economy, and and so forth. It all came together. So our man, Thomas Alva Edison, was born here in Milan, Ohio, because this was a major center for shingle oaks of all things. (laughs) And that's how that began.
0: And what was the size of the Edison
3: family? Seven kids. He's the last of seven. Okay. Two adults. So there's a lot of. It's a pretty bustling house over there. The three just older than him all passed away at a young age. They're buried up in the cemetery. So he's raised almost as an only child. There's a pretty big gap between him and the next oldest. Mm-hmm. And his oldest sister Marion helps raise him a lot. Um, so he names his first child after her.
0: Okay. Getting into this interview, I know each of you are going to share how strongly you feel about this. Thomas Edison, his story needs to be talked about today. Um, his accomplishments have been talked about throughout the course of history. And, and I know you're, you're going to cover that in the interview today. But why is Thomas Edison important today? Why, why do people need to know his story? What can
4: they learn from it? I think the, the most important reason that people need to know the story of Thomas Edison today is primarily the mission of the Edison birthplace is it's inspiration to youth. And I think no other person perhaps inspires youngsters (laughs) in their curiosity and in the uh, background of Edison himself growing up as a youngster, you know, in Milan as Mr. Blakeman already pointed out, you know, this was such a bustling, you know, community. We have to understand that the, uh, you know, in in about 1847, when Edison was born, and in the early 1850s here, the telegraph has come into play. Milan has a uh, telegraph office located on the square. Thomas Edison has the opportunity, you know, in his backyard to watch these schooners coming up and down the, the canal and all of these people around here so he was he was really uh, a youngster that had all of these opportunities you know in terms of his early years in uh, growing up in, in Milan and the uh, the thing about you know Thomas Edison at the other end of his life and myself being a teacher, and, and a parent, I think all of us can appreciate, you know, this inspiration of youth thing, you know, that, that we have to offer. And that's what keeps, keeps our whole uh, country alive. Uh, one of my favorite quotations of, of all of Thomas Edison is in his later years in life, he was being interviewed by a reporter. And the reporter saying, "You know, Mr. Edison, you being the greatest inventor of all time, what do you consider the greatest invention ever?" And Edison replied without hesitation, "The mind of a child." And so, for me, you know, that basically says what we're all about. And for our inspiration, you know, to youth, uh, that's that's it. And You know, being an an example of that as a youngster growing up, you know, in this community and coming to visit, you know, the Edison birthplace and hearing, you know, the, uh, the Edison story and reading every word in that little brown book, that inspiration to youth. I'm sure, you know, there's no question that's basically what, you know, inspired me. You know, throughout my life growing up in, in Milan and being part of the schools and doing scrapbooks on Thomas Edison. Everything I had an opportunity to do, uh, I, I chose Thomas Edison. And I, of course, used Edison throughout my career, you know, as a physics teacher in terms of uh, passing that on, you know, to to all, all of the young people that I come in touch with.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Wheeler, by the way, his uh, oldest sister, Marion, is my great-great-grandmother. So, um, and we are the only Edison site, by the way, with family involved. We have mm. his great-grandchildren on the board as well. Um, but just touching on on why he's important and the inspiration to the youth, um, he's a here's a boy who at a young age is totally stupid and addled and can't learn. And so, I mean, I'm sure many kids feel, you know, they just can't do well, but through his mother's teaching and guidance, he goes on to change the world like no one else in history ever has. Uh, Just two of his inventions, the phonograph and movie projector, make the entire entertainment industry. But here's a kid again, who's totally stupid and, and can't learn. But he does it through perseverance, his attitude, and his action. His attitude is, I don't fail, I find things that don't work. And his action is, I don't give up. Something will work, and I will find it. And if you apply these rules to whatever you do in life, uh, you too will be successful But by just not giving up. Throughout his life, he was childlike,
2: not childish. Little kids do what? They ask questions. Why this, Mom? Why that? Thomas Alba Edison asked those questions as a child and continued to through his life. His his perspective on the world was not constrained by what he read in books. He figured out how to go beyond that. As I said in the pre-interview, I'll mention this again. There's a wonderful recent sculpture of Thomas Alva Edison and his mother here in the town square of Milan. It is wonderfully done. His mother is sitting there in all of her majesty, reading, as he was homeschooled, to Thomas. Thomas is standing next to her. His eyes are away from her. His eyes are looking off in the distance. Most would say he's not paying attention. Yes, he is. He's doing as he did. He could pay attention to his mother, but his mind was beyond the immediate. It captures, in bronze, exactly who the man was throughout his life. He could see beyond the constraints of present knowledge, and he used his vision to see beyond, and he used his diligence to attain those visions.
1: Now, that's not to say he didn't get in trouble <laughs> when he was a kid. Here in Milan, there are some uh, really uh, uh, good stories about how his, uh, his interest in things uh, led to sometimes a little trouble. Uh, he, and, and it's not proven that he actually was out at Robert's farm, uh, his, his sister's farm. Uh, but he was discovered sitting on duck eggs. And when he was questioned, he, he said, well, I, you know, if the duck can do it, I thought I'd try. Um, one of the stories attached to that was that his, bro- his uh, brother-in-law, Homer Page, laughed at him. But his sister, Marion, um, encouraged him to, to do more. The other thing, the other probably big thing that happened was that he and um, a a friend uh, decided that they want to see, they wanted to see a bonfire. Unfortunately, it was in a barn. And so he burned the barn down. And that must have been probably the last straw for his father, because his father announced to the town that his son was going to be publicly spanked, and he took him to the square, and and spanked him. So it wasn't that he never got into trouble, uh, but I think those that getting into trouble didn't dissuade him at all. And there were a thousand other stories about his childhood.
0: It seems to me, in, in reading about him, in listening to your stories, he seemed to be a very keen observer, and when people would present a problem, even if they just were airing a grievance, he immediately would think of a way to solve that. Could someone speak to that, that mentality he had of trying to solve problems.
4: I think that, you know, uh, uh, John may have addressed this at least earlier in, in the conversation, too, with regard to his ability, you know, to do research. And that, that was, you know, the, the most important part, you know, about him, is that he was a problem solver. And it, what made him so different is he took problems that meant something, you know, that would make mankind, you know, better off because of its results. And so he, he learned that, you know, from that first invention that he did of the vote recorder. And, of course, he learned real quickly that the politicians didn't want anything to do with anything that was scientific, you know, that interfered with their filibustering and so forth. And so he said that was his greatest lesson, you know, in his inventive career, which was his very first, you know, patent, that vote recorder. That was something, you know, that was not universally accepted, you know, by people. So he said, from this point on, Everything that I do will be something that will benefit mankind and be useful, you know, in their things. And so I think that, you know, when we look at all of those, you know, inventions that he did, you know, they were timely and things that, you know, were were extremely important. The stock ticker, really, you know, we probably, you know, we could say that may have been, you know, his greatest of, of all because that was his second thing. And that, he was, he was able to sell that, you know, to Western Union. But that's when the whole telegraphic and, and this whole communication era began in America, was right at that time. And here he is, a youngster, you know, 22 years old, you know, in terms of doing this. And he's able to sell that invention to Western Union, for about forty thousand dollars to allow him to establish his first, you know, laboratory and hire his first, you know, people and so forth, and so from there, you know, then he just he just takes off, you know, in terms of uh, with the uh, with the phonograph and the electric light bulb, you know, the mimeograph, uh, uh, his work with the X rays, you know and storage batteries and you know you know everything you know that we think of in you know in, in the modern world today and so uh but but his main thing was never give up Is that you know he he may have failed many many times but he, he didn't acknowledge and all years said so that just something that I learned now that that doesn't you know work and so it's that that 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration, again, that makes him, you know, different, you know, from, from almost all other, you know, um, great scientists, great inventors. And money, you know, I think was the other main thing, you know, that separates Thomas Edison from most other, you know, major you know, inventors.
2: I was just going to bring that up. Important. Compare the great people of the late 19th century. There was Carnegie. There was um, uh, Standard Oil. um, Rockefellers. There were all of these great business magnates who made tremendous amounts of money. And yes, they did contribute to American uh, progress and so forth. But Edison was, he was not that. Yes, he made money. He lived in a nice house. There's several of them in in, uh, New Jersey and so forth. But no one would say that Edison was a magnet. He was not a gigantic, he didn't make lots of, he didn't do any of this to make money. The question is, what was his motivations? Don Geffel just mentioned it, to make life better. He saw he, how wonderful that was. How And we have light bulbs right here because of that. We have electrical systems and so forth. All of the way we live today derives from Thomas Alva Edison's vision. Not to make himself money, not to make a great corporation, although he helped form GE, but that that goes without saying. He did it because it was in his mind, the right thing to do, make life better. Remember, as always said, right here in Milan, Ohio, it, I don't know whether this is true or not, one of his motivations for incandescent light bulbs was he had to um, light lamps with smelly, uh, stinking, rotten, and expensive whale oil. Light at that time was, was tough. So you want to make light better. Did he make it? He accomplished that very well. Did he get exceedingly wealthy off of that? No. Um, that's not the point. The point of the man is he uh, was a man of great vision, great diligence, uh, and great work. He was truly an American hero.
3: On light bulbs, while other people are working on incandescence, and people know about incandescence, that you can make a light, the thing that makes Edison different is he made, he's system-oriented. It's, it's fine to have a light bulb that works in the laboratory, he makes the generators, he finds out the distribution systems, he finds the high resistance parallel wiring, he puts the whole system together so you can throw a switch and light comes on. And that's what makes him he brings it to market. And that's a huge change from making a light bulb work in the laboratory. At that point, what comes up in the in your
2: list some of your listeners' minds right here? Yeah, but Nikola Tesla. Okay, let's address that question right here. Let's, let's make this very clear. No doubt, Tesla was a genius. He was, was no, he came up with, but the fact of the matter is, check out his biography. He really did, accomplished in modern sequential, uh, consequential terms only two things. He really did improve the induction motor. He made electrical motors much better, and that's to his credit. He also invented, oh, he didn't invent it, he was the man who did the equations he made with Westinghouse, alternating current. Now, here's the point. Make this very clear to your listeners. At the time that Thomas Alva Edison invented incandescent light bulbs, he envisioned a local market, which was in the cities. There was no possibility... In the 1870s or 80s or 90s at the time, no one could envision it was not possible that farmhouses or even houses right here in a little town like Milan would be connected to an electrical grid and you could turn the light on. The only thing that really would work at the time was neighborhoods in big cities. You got a lot of people, high density, so you have lots of light bulbs, few wires, and on every corner, you could have a local small generating plant, power plant <laughs> with a dynamo. And yes, the best way to move that electricity around was direct current. Things changed when people looked at Niagara Falls and understood there's just gigantic amounts of electricity there. And to his credit, uh, Tesla figured out that if we harness the power of Niagara Falls through a dynamo and convert it to alternating current, then you can send it several hundred miles to New York City and it would work. The fact of the matter is, widespread transmission of electricity was uh, the next step after Edison's neighborhood or localized electrical usage. Had Tesla not been there to do it, someone else would have. It was not a great thing. Alternating current was known. He was just the man who could do the equations. And Tesla was a showman, unlike Edison. Tesla dressed himself up. He lived in the best uh, hotels, ate the best food. He had all kinds of people in there. He was a salesman, and he was able to sell George Weish- uh, to Westinghouse and so forth how this should be. Uh, so let's get the story right. Tesla was a genius. He did what he did. Uh, but to say that Tesla died with a whole bunch of phenomenal, undeveloped ideas... No, he came up with all kinds of ideas that were wrong. He thought that Einstein's uh, quantum physics was wrong, relatively, 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 was wrong. At the time, the Wright brothers were experimenting. He just made the pronouncement that heavier-than-air aircraft powered by or guided by human beings were not possible. Uh, again, don't want to discount the genius of the man, but nor do we want to elevate him beyond Edison. Uh, I put him beside Edison, but in a wholly different era. He is not an Edison. Our man Edison stands by himself, as the record shows.
1: Well, in fact, um, Tesla and Edison knew each other, and Tesla had worked for Edison, but they weren't in conflict. Uh, They they were respectful of each other's abilities, and the the big um, controversy that you hear in modern days uh, about Edison taking away Tesla's Fame or or stealing uh, Tesla's ideas um, is a modern construct. It it isn't from the time that they interacted with each other, mm-hmm. so it 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 really doesn't flow. And it's not to say that Edison I and mean, Edison was very stubborn about yes, the DC um, issue, yes, he and he and Westinghouse got into some controversy, but but the this idea of Tesla and Edison uh, fighting all the time is just uh, not true.
3: Tesla and Edison come from completely different worlds. One grows yes. up on the frontier, is self basically self-taught, yes. and he's very poor in math. The other one grows up in, in Belgrade, or I, I think it was Belgrade, and goes mm-hmm. to U- European universities and is very good in math. I wasn't there. I don't know this, but for... I'm imagining for Edison, a DC system is very much like a a water supply system. The higher you put the the water tank, the the, uh, height is your difference in potential, your voltage. How big the container, how much electricity you can deliver, how big the pipe, how big the flow. So it goes from up there to ground. And that works. I, I mean, the lights work. But then Tesla comes along and says, well, we do this back and forth 60 times a second. And I don't think Edison has to, he just cannot comprehend this. He grows up in a mechanical age, and he grows up, most of his early machine, inventions are are machines, and then he goes on to chemistry. But he's not good at math. I had heard recently he couldn't multiply seven times seven. That's just not what he does. So he he just can't understand the concepts, I think, that, that Tesla's presenting to him, and it's like go away, kid. You know, I, I look. I, this works, and that was it.
2: Tesla had the equations. <laughs> Tesla's uh, alternating equations were right. In practice, they worked. Tesla got in trouble in college. His professors almost tossed him out because he could do differential equations in his head. Better than the professors. <laughs> now, now the guy was a genius. No doubt about that. But and this, yes, and you had to have those equations
1: to do all of the induction and all of this stuff about alternating currents. But this controversy about Edison and Tesla going head to head over A C D C that was it was Westinghouse, wasn't it? Yes. More than more, more than Tesla. Tesla worked for Westinghouse, but it it was Westinghouse and Edison. Right. Because it was, West,
2: what, it was Westinghouse who was going to make the money right. uh, by, by having um, a long-distance transmission of electricity from uh, Niagara Falls to New York City and so forth. Well,
1: that was a good idea. And it was a good that It had to be. That's,
2: that's what, what it is yeah. now. Like I said, Edison's idea was the right time, at the right time, the next chapter was this sort of thing. And I have to say, right now, for longest-distance transmission, they're now going back to high voltage, high amp- excuse me, high amperage. DC crazy. <laughs> so it uh, it comes back, it, uh, but it's all that. Math- it's all, all the mathematics of electrical circuitry and Tesla had <laughs> More than you wanted to know. <laughs> so, let's get back to our man, Thomas,
0: here. Uh, well, growing up, he, in addition to the homeschooling, he certainly exhibited a entrepreneurial flair, inventive mind, uh, doing some apprenticeships. Can you Speak to some of those experiences well, very early those, on in his
4: life. You know, uh, certainly, you know, uh, Henry Ford, you know, probably said it best. You know, in terms of uh, of his later years in life, Edison was a very poor businessman. You know, That's like right. Ford said, "greatest inventor ever, world's greatest or worst businessman." However, you know, to. Start that at the beginning of his life, and Edison was very much, you know, into the entrepreneurship thing as a youngster. And when they moved to uh, Port Huron, Michigan, he worked along the uh, Grand Trunk Railway between Port Huron and Detroit, and he sold candy on the train and uh, newspapers, actually, you know, uh, creating you know, his own newspaper and selling vegetables and so forth. And before you knew it, he had an, another couple of his young buddies, you know, helping him. So there were two or three of them.
1: And he and was 12,
4: he was right? getting a commission, you know, from them. And this is as a young teenager, yeah, 12, 13 years old in terms of, of doing that. And, and uh, you know, back then, he would, he could make even $10 a day. That would be like today, probably, or something like that. And so he really started out, you know, his younger years, you know, really, as a a pretty good businessman.
2: And then, Don, Um, you can tell the story better than I, how he um, cajoled himself, sneaked himself into uh, telegraphy offices, caused people to (laughs) teach him telegraphy, uh, and 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 then how he sat there and watched all of these little
1: things and just figured it out phenomenally. Well, the sem- the seminal story is is that um, he uh, the the uh, station manager's yes. child had fallen on the tracks and Edison rescued the child, and so for his reward, um, Edison asked if he if he could be taught telegraphy. So and and again. It wasn't that he never got in trouble because he (laughs) set himself up a little chemical lab on the train, which caught on fire, but it wasn't, you know, it it wasn't a sense of rebellion. It was just a sense of wonder and wanting to, to, to investigate all these things that, you know, sometimes went beautifully and sometimes got him in trouble. It was just that as that, at that teenager, like Lois said, when he, Saved the station
4: master's kid from being run over by the train, you know, uh, and he taught him telegraphy again, that telegraphy, that was the major part, you know, of his early, uh, life. And from a teenager on when he was, you know, like 16, 17 years old, he basically was like a hippie and he roamed throughout our Midwestern states here, uh, Till he was twenty years old, when he, you know, ended up in, in New York, and all of that time, he was working along the telegraph lines that were, you know, popping up in the in the Midwest, and he was a very good telegrapher, and of course that's how he got started. And one
2: of, one of the problems with telegraphy one of the problems telegraphy is you've just got a certain number of wires going down the railroad tracks, you can only send one message at a time. One of his most brilliant things. Yeah. Was um, the quadruplex. The quadruplex, an ability yeah, to right. send three or four different messages over the same wires at the same time. It couldn't possibly be done. But he envisioned it clicking away and did it. Uh, it transformed things. You could now now you it's doubled the size of communications in in America by four or five times using the same sorts of things. Man...
3: Was a genius. If you're running telegraph lines across Kansas and you can only send one, but now you right. can send four, eight, or sixteen, you've just saved yourself sixteen copper wires going across Kansas. That's a lot of money.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the telegraphy thing of still, it, that's still fascinating to me. In terms of how long, you know, that lasted, and like his basically his stock ticker. I don't think we think of of, of a lot of his inventions, how, what an expansion of time, you know, they covered. They were using an Edison stock ticker. I have one, you know, in my collection that came out of the Terminal Tower, you know, in in Cleveland that was being used up to like 1960, you know, at at a lot of the major ballparks and things like that in the country. And the same thing was true (coughs) You know, like with the dictaphone, you know, system, which was the, basically the the phonograph, the outgrowth, you know, which became the phonograph. And that thing, you know, lasted, you know, for a period of like 60 years. And the other thing that's so fascinating to me is, you know, with the kinetoscope, you know, with Edison's motion picture industry in terms of how long. You know, that lasted, the, the concept of the 35-millimeter film that Thomas Edison used was used all the way up into the 1970s, 1980s. So the stuff was used almost for a 100 years without ever being changed. And that's how great, you know, it was, you know, in terms of the quality of the things that he did were just unbelievable.
3: You can play old films on a modern yeah. projector. You yeah. have the Edison standard socket; is the standard light bulb socket
4: still? I mean, that's yeah. what we use. Mm-hmm. We did an interesting little project here. I'll be real quick on that. You know, with a time capsule a few years ago, with the sound recording, and we we buried all of the uh, uh, little. What do what we call them, Robert? You know, the modern things. CDs. The CDs and, you know, I don't even know the names for all the modern things. But, of course, tapes. along with that, the eight tracks and the other magnetic tapes and all that stuff, and along with that, we, of course, put in a wax cylinder. And we have that buried outside the birthplace here in the corner of the lot. And a 100 years from now, you know, other people like myself, we are absolutely 100% certain that the only communication that will come from any of those devices that we put in that cell will be from that wax uh, cylinder phonograph, and they'll be able to come in here and put that on one of the uh, Edison players and, and play it today. <laughs> and the rest of the stuff, there will be, it will be zero.
3: <clears throat>
2: Two ironic connections. In telegraphy, you've got a long and a short a dot and a dash. Today, your computer is working with zeros and ones, a yes and a no, a dot and a dash, as it were. In the 21st century, digital communications are using that same sort of thing. The other one, Lois, tell us, who
1: were dot and dash? Oh, (laughs) well, and and to to let you know, dot and dash is the Morse code. You know, dots are short sounds, dashes are longer sounds. Uh, And you have to have a series of those for each letter um, to make up a word. Now, imagine the early telegraphers who had to send, they, they have before them a written paper. They have to translate that in their mind to Morse code, send it. And then the receiver on the other end has to listen to that and simultaneously translate it in his head and write it down. Apparently, Edison was a really good receiver. Dot, dot, and dash uh, of the Morse code became the nicknames of his first two children. Wonderful. His first son, dot a dash. Oops. His his first daughter. Dot and his second son, Dash. Um, of late, uh, we, we had housed here in, in the museum also Dot and Dash, uh, but they were two rescue cats. <laughs> <laughs> They've since gone to my home. But, yes, <laughs> Dot and Dash comes back.
4: The other, the other place where Dot and Dash come back in and his uh, telegraphy uh, is, of course, with his uh, second marriage when he uh, married Minor Miller. Another Ohio girl
0: from... Thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This was episode 43 with the Board of Trustee members and the Director of the Thomas Edison Birthplace Museum. The Board members were Robert Wheeler, John Blakeman, Don Gefell, and the Director, Lois Wolfe. We will be continuing part two of the episode, of the interview, rather, on episode 44. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.